Lies told. Relationships broken. Anger unleashed. What if I hadn't? Time wasted. Words unspoken. Forgiveness withheld. If only I had. Regrets. We all have them. Choices made. Missed opportunities. What if all our past pain could be turned into a fresh start? What if? What if I didn't try the olive oil flavored ice cream and just went for vanilla instead? I regret that choice. I regret participating in a eating hot chili peppers competition. What if I just watched and laughed at other people instead? I regret rear-ending my dad's brand new Volvo a few years ago. What if I'd paid him more attention? Here's another of my regrets. I was waiting for friends who were flying in from out of country at the airport a few years ago. The problem was I couldn't find their flight on the board. I kept looking. There were all sorts of things there. Their flight was never listed. There were flights coming from everywhere. There was a flight coming even from the city they were flying from, but theirs wasn't listed. Now, to be fair, I'd had a tough day at work. I was tired and grumpy. I know that. But to be truthfully honest, my patience was also wearing sinfully thin. And so eventually I found somebody that might possibly know something, and I asked them, where's this flight? I can't see it. This poor soul explained to me, well, you see, it's a co-chair flight. Just look for this and you'll get it. A co-chair? A co-chair? Any other airline could get this figured out. Any other airport flicks it on the screen. Co-chair, you can see what it is. What's wrong with you people? Can't you make any effort? To which he replied, well, Pastor James. (laughs) Dear, dear God, take me now. Just take me now. We've been thinking about all sorts of regrets. Some of them are things that we wish we hadn't done. Regrets of action, like abusing poor employees at the airport. Some of them are places where we've missed an opportunity. Maybe we should have spoken up and we didn't. And that's a regret of inaction. Why did I do nothing? And some of them are just things that happen to us, no fault of your own. Stuff just happens. But it stirs something up inside you and you get this regret about reaction, the way we respond to things. Why did I spend so much time feeling sorry for myself about this? And all the while we've been thinking about how Jesus can set us free and break out of this endless sorry cycle, like being stuck in the dryer, going round and round, reimagining what happened, thinking about it, feeling worse, getting nowhere, round in circles. So how does Jesus break the cycle and help us move beyond regrets? Not just little fun ones. But those serious things of life that we know we carry around. The first step we talked about was to recognize your regret. Stare it in the face, name it for what it is, own it rather than letting it own you. Make a decision. Acknowledge it to yourself. Acknowledge it with God. Acknowledge it with other people. Recognize it. The second step was to release our regrets. To stop holding on to them, to actually let go of them, to come out from living the lie and get really honest about our situation and our story. And sometimes that's hard. I think most often it's hard because it involves forgiveness. 
either me forgiving someone or someone forgiving me or maybe just me forgiving myself. Forgiveness is hard. The third step we talked about last weekend was the way Jesus can reframe our regrets. He can change things. What does that mean? It means he can take the worst of things, things that never should have happened, perhaps things we never should have done, or something that we should not never have allowed to happen to us. He can take all those things and he can redeem them. He can renew them. He can recycle them. He can reframe them into something very different. It doesn't mean the bad thing wasn't bad. It's still bad. But God is able somehow to weave it into his purpose and make something useful and good and beautiful out of the mess. Jesus can actually reframe those regrets in our lives. The final step we're coming to today is simply called rejoice, celebrate, be thankful for what God has done, for how he changes our perspective, for how he changes our destiny. We learn how to rejoice. And during our series, we've thought, Amongst other stories, the story of King David. We've thought about him as an example. His poor choices, his regrets, his sin, his confession, and how the story of his life continued to play out beyond all of that. Today, we're in Psalm 32. It kind of looks a bit like a psalm of confession, and to some extent it is. But in reality, it's mostly a psalm of thanksgiving and rejoicing. I'd like to read it for you. You'll find the words on the screen as well. Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then there's a little Hebrew word there, selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress. The rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed by bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What beautiful words. The Psalms as we read them in our Bible are not gathered in chronological order. It's a different sequencing. So although Psalm 51 is the big prayer of David's confession of his sin and the mess that he's made of his own life, Psalm 32 comes later in the history, the chronology, and it's his recounting of what God has done for him, and it's his prayer of thanksgiving. One of the amazing things I kind of discovered staring at this for long enough over several weeks were how many triplets you can find in this psalm. Not like three babies, but things that come in threes. When I was a kid, my grandma always used to talk about that. Something bad happened, the next thing she'd say to you, these things come in threes. Then I'd be terrified. What's going to happen next? The house is going to fall down. Car's going to get set on fire. But she would be right about this time. Something here does come in threes. The first three is about sin. Now I know not all of our regrets are about sin. Some are just small and trivial like some of mine. 
But they're sometimes way deeper than that. And I want us to go there and focus on that today. You see, the truth about the joy that Jesus brings is true for all of our regrets, big or small. So wherever you find yourself in your own journey of recognizing regrets or doing something with them, I think and I pray and I hope that you'll find yourself in this story today too. Three words about sin. The first one, the first triplet begins in verse 1 and 2. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Three synonyms. The first one is transgression, which means defiance or rebellion or disloyalty. This is like a brazen sort of thing. The second one is sin, deliberately missing the mark, willful neglect of our responsibilities, of our relationship with God. Iniquity talks about something that's wayward and twisted inside, the inner corruption of our lives. Though usually we tend to excuse ourselves from harsh words like that. I read one author put this thought beside it. We call it an accident, but God calls it abhorrent. We call it a blunder, but God calls it blameworthy. We call it chance, but God calls it a choice. We call it an error, and God calls it enmity. We call it fascination, God calls it a fatality. We call it an infirmity, and God calls it an iniquity. We call it a liberty, God calls it lawlessness. We call it a trifle, God calls it a tragedy. We call it a mistake, and God calls it mean. We call it weakness, and God calls it willfulness. And if all that gets you down and depressed on a Sunday morning, then pay attention because there are three beautiful word pictures that come next about deliverance, how God rescues us and delivers us from these things. Look what God does for us in the three words we get. Forgiveness. It literally means to carry our sin, our transgression, this defiance and open rebellion against God. It's been carried away. Carrying your own sin and guilt and regrets can seem very burdensome at times. It feels like this heavy weight that we lump, we move around under and we have to try and drag it about. It's hard because we were never designed for that. That was never God's purpose for our lives to have to do that and live with all of these regrets. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you actually feel that way right now. It's a heavy load. And yet we refuse to set it down. And instead we keep on going rather than let Jesus do what only Jesus can do. Before David confessed his sin, he was wrecked with regret about guilt and pain. He was burdened with the regret of his sinful choices. He was filled with anguish. He was no longer in close communication with God. He was in constant worry. Somebody would find out the truth about what he had done. When God carried his sin and regret away, his misery and mourning was replaced by joy. Think about Jesus. He carries responsibility for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read that he, Jesus himself, bore our sins on his body to the cross so that having died to sins, we might live to righteousness, for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Jesus bore your sin. He carried it. He carried it for you. He carried it far away. You don't need to go looking. There's no point in going looking. He's taken it a long way away. One of the other Psalms puts it like this. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions for us, from us. As far as the east is from the west. Jesus forgives. He carries it. 
You don't need to stay stuck. It's gone. The next little word we discover in this deliverance that Jesus brings to us is covered. Sin is covered, not like maple syrup on your pancakes kind of covered, but this is covered up for good, never to be remembered, never to be recounted, never to be revealed. There's no need for us to go digging around in the past. You can put the shovel away and forget about it because God has already done that. There's no need to dig down. God has got it covered just like Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, when they disobeyed the one thing God asked of them. And then they're hiding in the bushes because they're naked and they're ashamed and they're afraid. And God provides clothes to cover them. It's covered. Talk of cover, if you know some stories in the Old Testament, is atonement language. When God covers over the sin of his people. Sometimes we try to cover up. That's what David was doing, covering up, hoping nobody would find out. That's often our choice too. If we kind of smooth things over a bit, nobody will ever know. It'll be just fine. And David was doing that, trying to cover up sexual assault, murder. And yet God wants so much more. Those of Jewish faith recently celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Remembering the day when the temple was still in Jerusalem, when the high priest would go into the most holy place, he would work his way through the temple to the one place he only went one day per year, that single day, to make atonement on behalf of his nation. And he would make atonement for sin as he sprinkled the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, its cover, which was called the mercy seat. And again, we think of Jesus. In Romans, we read this about Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. Jesus makes atonement. He covers our sin. Don't go digging around. And we also read David telling us that God's deliverance means nothing is imputed or in language we're more likely to use, nothing is counted, nothing is charged in a sense that God's not keeping score of our iniquity or our sin. He doesn't keep a record of our wayward acts. It's not charged to your account. Pride and lust and materialism, gone. Selfishness and hatred and bitterness, no charge to you. There's no record of the times you failed to be the spouse that you wish you could have been. There's no more a record of the times you wish you'd been the parent your kids deserved, or you wish you were the kid your parents deserved to have. There's no record of how you did as an employee or as an employer and your responsibilities there. There's no record, there's no scorecard, there's no count. And again, we remember Jesus. Second Corinthians 5, Paul writes, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made the one who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Quit counting, because God's not counting. But of course, this carrying and covering and counter, not counting work of God, it really only begins to make a big difference in our lives when we allow it. 
when we choose to cooperate with what Jesus is doing, when we open our hearts toward him and receive God's good gifts, that's the implication of David's testimony in Psalm 32. When he was trying to cover it up, when he was refusing to acknowledge his responsibilities, when he tried to make it all disappear and go away, it wasn't going well for him. In verses three and four, he says, while I kept silent, my body wasted away through all my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. When David concealed the truth, his cover up was eating away at him. Quite literally, he was wasting away. Physically, he was drained. Emotionally, he'd come to the end of his rope. There was nothing left for him to do, nothing that he could change. He could feel the heavy hand of God's discipline upon his life. And then there's that little word, Selah. No one's entirely sure what it means. Pause and think and reflect, perhaps. Maybe it's take a break and read the story behind the story, behind the prayer. And if that's the case, we could pause and possibly read 2 Samuel chapter 11 again, where David's horrific actions are recounted for us in sordid detail. It begins with, David sent his messengers to get her, abuse and assault. It continues with his instruction, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die, murder. But verse five marks a transition where David has moved from concealing to confessing. Something new is happening in verse five. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Another triplet. Three words for sin. Three words for deliverance. Now there's three words here for breakthrough, for how things began to change as David expressed his contrition for his own choices. The first one is acknowledge. Acknowledging sin, it's the first step. It's where we began learning to recognize our regrets. We don't evade them. We don't hide from them. We don't pretend. We recognize, we acknowledge, we own up. We be honest with ourselves and truthful with God. David's next word here are don't hide. Don't hide our iniquity. Get it out into the open. Keep nothing back. If you're going to tell the truth, tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. His third word is confess. Confess those transgressions. Tell the truth about yourself to God. You know what? You won't shock him. He's heard a whole lot worse than anything you've got to say. And get this. He already knows. It's not a secret. He just wants to hear you say it and own up to who you really are. Bring it into the open and tell him the truth. That's what David did in his great psalm of confession, Psalm 51. He came out from under the lie. He got to the step two, the way we talked about it, about learning to release, telling God the truth. And God's promise to us is simply this. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's amazing that God longs to make everything right. He longs to forgive. He longs to brush all this stuff away and to cleanse and make everything new. And yet again in the psalm, we see the little word Selah. Pause, reflect. Maybe as we read the story of David again, you might want to in 2 Samuel 12, the first 13 verses, you read the story of how David began to come clean and tell the truth about himself and what he had done when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And then we get to verse 6. It seems all out of place. Suddenly David's talking about praying and floodwaters. And what's that all about? It's kind of hard to figure it out. And I certainly had to slow down my reading to get somewhere with it. But it seemed to me he's talking about even in the deep waters of life, God's got us. He can surround us and protect us. Instead of the woes of the wicked and the pain that we've lived with for so long, we discover that God is faithful to us. He will look after us and surround us. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it like this. When all hell breaks loose and the dam bursts, we'll be on the high ground and untouched. I like that, when all hell breaks loose. Has that ever happened in your life? Because Jesus promises that the very gates of hell could never hold him or his people back. Doesn't matter if all hell breaks loose. And here in Psalm 32, David is helping us understand not just the depth of his regret. He's trying to help us understand the extent of God's forgiveness. He wants us to experience what breakthrough truly means as we move beyond the sorry cycle that we find ourselves in. He wants us to know who God is and what God does. And so he's another triplet this time about the Lord in verse 7. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. Selah. Three more things. He's our hiding place where we're safe. Our daughter Ailey and our son-in-law Max are living with us right now while they're building a home. When they moved back here from the Netherlands, they brought their two cats, Hudson and Penny, with them. We already had one, Clover. We're now those people with a house filled with cats. You probably wouldn't want to come and visit. Clover and Penny have become best friends. They play all day, they run around, they lay down and sleep together, they share a bowl for eating. They're very happy with each other's company. Hudson is the alpha male of the group. And to be quite honest, Clover's terrified of him. Some days they get on well. Most days it turns into a chase that ends into a fur fight and gets all out of hand. But she has discovered in every room somewhere she can go and hide. She's found her little hiding place. What David's trying to say to us is figure this out. We don't need to be going hiding. We don't need to find a hiding place because we have Jesus. You have nothing to fear when you've got Jesus because he has you. Then he tells us that he's our protector. Protecting us from trouble. It's the image, I think, of a night watchman in an ancient walled city, wandering around, keeping an eye out. Is anybody sneaking up from the outside, coming to attack? Always alert. And he tells us that he surrounds us, holding back those floodwaters from verse 6 that could overwhelm us. David is really doing something here that we need to pay attention to, because in these verses, he is reframing the story of his life and the stories of our lives too recognize, release, and reframe. That's how we've been looking at our regrets and the choices that we've had to live with. And here's David's big perspective shift. Here's the reframe taking place as he reminds us all that God is for you. He's not against you. He loves you. He doesn't hate you or anybody else. He's with you. He has never abandoned you. And one last time, Selah. This time we could read 2 Samuel 12. Verses 24 and 25, we read them last week. A son will come eventually, Solomon, and the royal line will continue. It will continue on till you get to the story of baby Jesus being born at Christmas time. The Messiah will come from their royal line. Everything becomes different. The Apostle Paul wrote to his friends in Corinth, reminding them about their regrets and their sin, their shameful past, and reminding them too, of how Jesus reframed their story. 
He says this to them in 1 Corinthians 6. And this is what some of you used to be when he's got a whole list of all the bad stuff you could ever imagine, the yucky stuff of life. This is what you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There's one other reframe story you should think about. In the scriptures, you may know it well, Genesis 37 onwards towards the end of the book. It's the story of Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. Well, not quite, but close. The short version, Joseph was an arrogant young man who loved, loved to rub everybody else's nose in it about how much better he was than anybody else. No wonder his siblings didn't like him very much. But they weren't very kind either. And responding to his arrogance eventually led them into human trafficking and they sold him as a slave. Lots happened. A big long story. You can read it. Joseph's life just keeps getting from worse to worse to worse to worse to worse. Nothing goes right for him. But at the end of the story, when something did change, he's in the new country where he got into politics somehow. He becomes the prime minister and his agricultural and economic strategies has saved the nation of Egypt from ruin and from famine. And he saved his brothers too when they came looking for food, even though they didn't know who he was at first. And after teasing them and playing with them, we read this in Genesis 45. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I'm your brother Joseph who you sold into Egypt. That would have been fun to see their faces. (laughs) And now do not be distressed, okay? Or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. There is nothing good about being made a slave. There is nothing good about being abused for year after year. There was nothing good in his life about spending chunks of it in prison, falsely accused and convicted of things he never did. It's not good. But God could still use it. God could still redeem it and reframe it. And Joseph's story was reframed. David's story becomes reframed, and so can yours too. That God could redeem and recycle and renew the things that you think are so terrible. A couple more triplets to go. Verse 8, I'll instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. This is kind of like God speaking now. And he's telling David, reminding him, he's telling us that we can move forward. Because when God is doing his redeeming work, we don't need to stay stuck in the dryer going round and round and round with our regrets and our sin. God sets us free. It's time to get out of the dryer and get moving along. And here are the three words, instruction, clear direction, teaching, how to live, counseling. And I love the metaphor, he says, with his eye upon us. In other words, God misses nothing. He's keeping his eye on you. He's keeping his eye on you at home too. He's watching right now. We can move on together with him because it's not all up to us. My time's gone and we have lots of baptisms to get to today. So one last triplet. It's where the psalm ends up and it's where we can end up too. And that's all about praise and joy. The whole psalm is a celebration of praise because when we recognize our regrets and when we release them and we allow Jesus to redeem and reframe our lives, then it is time to rejoice at what God has done. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, O you upright in heart. Three again, be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. It's why we celebrate the way that we do. Regrets, everybody's got them. I've shared lots of mine with you. Most of them are humorous. And some of mine are heart-wrenching that I struggle with. We all have them. But the good news is that regret does not have to be the finish line for us. In fact, it can be the starting point of a new chapter in our story. 
a story that begins to start over again when we recognize those things and face them head on. When we release, release them, asking or offering for forgiveness. When we let God do what only God can do and redeem and recycle and reframe our lives, bringing good from the bad that has been part of our story. And when that happens, how could we ever stop from praising? We rejoice. When Paul recounts his story of traveling to Damascus and he fell on the ground and the bright light was there and he had an encounter with the living Jesus, it's remarkable about what happens next. He retells the story in Acts chapter 22 and he talks about another person that he went to see. Well, he couldn't see, but he went to his house. A man called Ananias. And Ananias said to Paul, And now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and have your sins washed away, calling on his name. This life-changing encounter with Jesus that dis disclosed to him that God was bigger and more powerful than he could ever have imagined. He was bigger and larger than any regret he could have in his life, and Paul had plenty. He'd just spent years persecuting the followers of Jesus, having them arrested and killed. He was being beginning to understand that he could let go of this white-knuckled hold he had on regret and respond fully and openly to God's grace and receive his forgiveness and redemption. And his baptism represented that letting go. Because baptism is a marker event for us in life. It's where you draw a line in the sand. It's where you can plant a stake in the ground. It's where you can reaccount to anybody and to yourself this moment of remarkable change in our lives when we begin to say out loud to everybody, I want to start over. I want to start with Jesus. I want to publicly identify this way. Baptism represents being washed clean from the stains of the past. It represents the end of an old way of living and a new birth to a brand new way of living with Jesus. It represents us being united with Christ, going into the waters, dying with him, being raised up again to new life, the new beginning that Jesus gives to us with his resurrection power. It's the symbol of the Holy Spirit drenching us as we're covered in water and it marks our incorporation into the very body of Christ, the church itself. In a moment, we will get to celebrate the baptisms of several people. We get to rejoice with them. It's why we shout and scream and clap and make a lot of noise because God instructs us, rejoice. But maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Maybe you haven't. Why wouldn't you do that today? Why not accept his offer of forgiveness to start over, to discover that God's not counting? He's covered it. He's carried it away. He just wants you. Today could be the day where you could simply pray, Jesus, I need you and I want you. And then tell him the truth about who you are and ask to be part of his family. If you've never been baptized, today could be that day for you too. You've got the opportunity to be baptized right now. It's here and we're here for you. And today could be that moment for you to say yes to Jesus. And you could be thinking, oh, I didn't plan to do that. That's okay. We've got t-shirts and towels and shorts and hair dryers and all sorts of things. You don't need anything. You'll be just fine. We've done everything we could possibly think of to make it possible for you to be baptized this morning. Or maybe you're thinking, wow, I wish I had brought some people with me. They'd love to see this. That's why we have a photographer. That's why we video everything. You can take the photos and you can replay it later on today and show it to people. 
I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing some songs together. And we're going to participate, cheering as we cheer people on in their journey with Jesus. But if you would like to be baptized today, then take Ananias' words to Paul seriously. Don't delay. Let's get on with it. Pastor Heather is right over here. There's a light on. She's waiting. The door's open. You can walk over there at any point while I'm talking, while we're praying, while they're singing. Just get yourself over there. Don't delay. It makes it easier if we go quicker. But we would love to help you and pray with you today. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your love that is stronger than our regrets. Thank you that your forgiveness covers all of our sin and failure and transgression. Thank you that you can turn the worst of things into something amazing. Thank you that when we have no idea what we're doing, that you are there watching over us, protecting us, leading us, and guiding us. And I want to pray today for people that have never said yes to Jesus, that right now in their own words, quietly, we just tell you the truth about how much we need you, about how much things need to change, about those regrets and ask that you would cover them and carry them and not count them for honours. Some of us need to be baptised. I pray that you give us the courage to get out of a seat, even with people looking and thinking, today's the day where I'm going public with this and saying yes to Jesus. I'm not going to stall him any longer. I'm ready. And for those who will be baptised today, Father, may your spirit fall upon them. May they sense your deep pleasure in their yes to you because you've already said yes to us. We give you thanks. We rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen.